HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, our weekly food news roundup. Fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote an episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. Should you eat the cheese rind? Can you eat the rind? These are like the biggest questions. We'll answer all of your questions about mysterious mushrooms and crazy curds. Plus, we'll give you a sneak listen to the newest season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Robertus in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what, what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Masud Gyasi, who has a Japanese food and restaurant blog on Instagram under Tokyo Manhattan. And his posts not only describe restaurants he has visited, but also include many other elements behind the dishes, such as history, culture, cooking methods. And he appeared on episode 125 and told us about his favorite Japanese chefs and restaurants in Paris, New York, and in Tokyo. And today, so we'll continue our conversation with Masud uh, with a focus on his favorite sushi restaurants. And sushi is more popular than ever globally, but the world of sushi is so profound that there's so, still a lot to learn for us. So we'll discuss the origin of sushi and uniqueness of just Japanese sushi culture, how to eat sushi, along with uh, the fascinating personality of each restaurant that Masud has visited. Um, before we begin, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. 
So please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We、uh, look forward to hearing your feedback. And a quick announcement the 23rd Sumo Stew is coming to New York on Monday, November 12th at 8 p.m. at Brooklyn Brewery in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And as you may know, Sumo Stew is a seasonal live streaming event of Sumo matches straight from Japan,、um, NHK, <laughs> the national broadcasting. And you can enjoy Japanese food from outstanding restaurants as you watch the matches. And tickets are available at eventbrite.com and search、uh, for Sumo Stew. And for Japanese listeners, there's a ten, tip, $10 off discount code that is SSJapanEats, one word, and double S Japanese. So、uh, let's start a conversation with Masud Kelsey. Hello, Masud. Welcome back. Hi, Akiko san. Thanks for having me. Always great to be on your show. I think the last time I was here was back in summer. And as a, as a Japanese, you can appreciate the change of seasonality. And now we're in fall.、Mm-hmm. So happy fall. <laughs> happy fall and happy Halloween. Yes, that's right. So,、uh, so first of all, our for listeners who have not listened to episode 125, so tell us about your super unique and intriguing background. Sure, yeah. So I'm、uh, ethnically Afghan. I've never been to Afghanistan.、Uh, I was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan. Spent 28 years of my life there.、Uh, my dad was with the Afghan embassy when the Soviet invasion happened,、um, and he sought political asylum there.、Uh, so that's how our family ended up in Japan.、Um, so, yeah, I carry a Japanese passport. I'm a Japanese citizen. I have an Arabic name, ethnically Afghan. So go figure every time I pass through customs and immigrations, <laughs> I'm always there random. <laughs> okay.、Um, so、uh, now you're based in New York、uh, since 2011. So,、uh, how often do you visit Japan? Yeah, I try to make it a habit of going every year. Having said that,、uh, I haven't been back this,、uh, the last three years.、Um, I, I hadn't been back for three years and I went back last May.、Mm, so, you caught up with all those what's happening right there? Yes. So, a lot of friends back home. My family no longer resides there. But really, I mean, growing up in Tokyo, Tokyo is my city, so I miss it very much.、Mm, right. Okay, so,、um, so we see sushi everywhere in America、uh, from a supermarket, or school cafeteria to expensive $300 restaurant.、Um, so we don't know too much about sushi,、um, but before that, there's something really we should know about that's the Japanese sensibility, which you mentioned in the last show. So, what do you mean by Japanese sensibility? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big topic. And,、um, I, and, you know, as a Japanese, I'm sure you can understand and appreciate. But aesthetics,、um, it, it, Japanese values, aesthetic values are quite essential to、uh, Japan's cultural identity. And it's very integrated、um, relative to the West, where, you know, the arts and aesthetics don't show up as much in、um, cultural manifest, in, in, in everyday life. In Japanese culture and Japanese society, and being in Japan, all these aesthetic values are much more pronounced and people pay much more attention to them. And just to kind of give a high level overview of what Japanese aesthetics are, it's basically rooted in Shintoism and Buddhism, Japan's so called religions, I guess.、Uh, Shintoism is more a way of life, Buddhism is more of a philosophy. And、um, what we see in both of these two、um, Ideas or religions, whatever you want to call it, is that nature is seen as a dynamic whole、uh, that is to be admired and appreciated. It's living in harmony with nature.、Uh, 
Um, so as such, when you go to a lot of temples, a lot of shrines, it's very much embedded with nature, with the seasons, um, with the ch- changing seasons, I should say. And getting a little bit more granular with respect to some of these aesthetic values, we have one, wabi-sabi, which I'm sure you're very familiar. It's, you know, basically any Japanese, every Japanese learns what wabi-sabi is. It's, it's the transience of things. Uh, as things come and go, uh, they show their signs of coming or going, and these are considered to be beautiful. So the passing of, of time, the seasons, um, both them arising and decaying or changing, there's a beauty in every part of it. It mm, could be imperfect. Even, even things like uh, rusting things or, you know, things getting old, we find beauty in it. Absolutely, yes. So that's yes. wabi-sabi. Yes. Right. So in every stage of uh, of, of someone's, uh, or I say, sh- uh, in every stage, life cycle stage, you appreciate the inherent nature of a thing. Mm. So that's... Right. And also, I think uh, if you go to not just sushi, but kaiseki restaurant, you often see a miniature version of view, beautiful view of the nature on the plate. Even the plate itself is often, um, you know, symbolic figure, color of the nature. So yes. So uh, yeah, to your point, yeah, kaiseki cuisine is, I guess, Japanese oat cuisine. And that's the ultimate manifestation of Japanese cultural values in food. Mm. The presentation, the ingredients, the way it's prepared. Uh, even when you walk into a restaurant, the aesthetics around the restaurant, the, the ambiance, the vibe, it's, it's all Japanese aesthetic values being played out. Mm. Right. I think uh, a while ago we started to see white uh, porcelain um, dishes and plates and you know, all those things. But it used to be always kind of more rustic colored yeah. tableware that was uh, the mainstream. And I think kind of it's uh, the Western tables in New York, you started to see non-white, really um, uh, natural toned tableware. Yeah, I heard that some of them were influenced by, by Japan or even purchased from Japan. So. Interesting, yeah. yeah. No, you go to some of these um, furniture lifestyle concept stores in Manhattan and Brooklyn, there's a lot of Japanese thematic things. You come across a lot of Japanese porcelain, a lot of Japanese, you know, tableware and whatnot. So it's it's visible everywhere. Mm. Makes nice. me proud as a Japanese. <laughs> but to continue with uh, some of the uh, aesthetic values, we also have yugen, which is profound grace and subtlety. Uh, miyabi, which is another aesthetic ideal. That's gracefulness, elegance. Um, shibui, simple yet complex. Um, simple but with subtle details. Uh, iki. And also gedo, so this is the appreciation for the process of creation. Mm-hmm. So all these values, I mean, they're, they're pretty deep. I'm not going to get into oh, two of them. Oh, you can just weaken to one show for each, each term. Seriously. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but point being that all these aesthetic values manifest itself in Japanese cuisine, um, and specifically in sushi, and especially in kaiseki cuisine, because those are considered to be sort of haute Japanese uh, cuisine. Hmm. And to just kind of wrap up the sensibility aspect of it, tying these aesthetic values with the sensibility side of things, it's, it's for this reason that you see the pursuit of perfection by Japanese chefs, just the laser focus of obsession with your craft. You know, mm-hmm. you have, uh, for example, when you go to Ginza, the glitzy area of, of Tokyo, there's, you know, coffee shops where the guy has been making cappuccino for the last 
30 years and you're there <laughs> to flavor the 30 year cappuccino. Um, and later we'll talk about some of the sushi restaurants, but uh, Jiro, uh, which is a sushi place in Ginza, their whole thing is, you know, that th- 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 the master chef has been, Jiro-san has been doing this over the last 60 years nonstop. Mm. So it's, it's that obsession. It's the diligence, the laser focus, attention to details, loyalty, dedication, uh, hard work, perseverance, and just the focus on quality, local produce. Again, this kind of ties in, in into the harmony with nature. And finally, the concept of adopt, adapt, adapt. So Japanese are very good at taking something they like, um, making it their own, and taking it to a level of perfection. Mm. Italian cuisine, French cuisine. In Japan, it's a whole different world. It's, it's like, you know, even the French and the Italians are surprised. by going, oh my God, what is this? Um, so that, I, get, I guess, in a nutshell, is the Japanese sensibility. And when you go to you know, relatively nice places in, in you know, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and probably other parts of the world like Paris, you see these cultural values manifest itself in, mm. in, uh, and the Japanese sensibility manifests itself both in the kitchen and on the table, uh, your surroundings, and in, in the ingredients of the food. Mm. So profound. <laughs> and one more point, if I may make, the whole concept of shun cooking, shun, which means peak season, um, is another concept that a lot of chef as- chefs ascribe to, as in you try to capture the essence of an ingredient at its most delicious state and serve that. So a good restaurant that pays attention to um, its uh, ingredients in Japan and practices shun cooking, the menu constantly changes, and it's according to what's in peak season. Um, and that's referred to as shun cooking. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, the shun is part of the nature, of course. And I think, you know, we're going to talk about sushi chefs today. But um, every great sushi master, they're so modest. And then they never say, I'm the best. And because you are part of, tiny part of the nature. Which yes. is completely, you know, the biggest power you can think of. And I think... This concept of nature versus human being doesn't exist in the Japanese sensibility because you are part of the nature. You can't even surrender. Yes. So that's why you keep working, keep try to perfect things because that's your mission to be a part of this nature. So that kind of, so the in, unlimited pursuit of perfection that comes also to martial arts yes. and the way of something, like a way of tea, way, way of, you know, like a martial arts, judo, kendo. Yeah, so it's not this far beyond food. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, just to add to your point with respect to your earlier comments, uh, humility, humbleness is very much a Japanese you know, cultural trait. It's good to be humble. It's good to practice humility. Mm. And uh, when you look at, for example, tennis, the most recent match, I for- I'm sorry, I forgot the names of the uh, tennis players off the top of my head. But the Japanese lady who won, who beat uh, the Williams sister, uh, like when she got on stage and spoke, it was, you know, sheer humility. She thanked Williams. She said, um, you're my role model. So it was really a cultural manifestation coming out. And um, to your latter point, um, about uh, cultural values manifesting self away from food. Toyota, as an example, practices Six Sigma, which mm-hmm. is Kaizen and, and minimizing errors. And this is just another manifestation of 
obsession to make things perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it began with, uh, I think, with GE with, with, or Ford, was it, the whole Six Sigma concept. And then the Japanese took it and took it to the next stages. And, you know, they perfected the whole manufacturing of automobiles. So mm-hmm. to your point, again, uh, it's, it's, it manifests itself in various parts of Japanese culture. Right. Yeah, sometimes they sacrifice themselves too much that they work too too much. <laughs> that's the But, downside of right. things, yes. <laughs> right, so that's why I'm here, right, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm here too. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so let's talk more about sushi, more um, particularly sushi. Um, so sushi, we know sushi, but, you know, we don't know too much about it either. So what's the history of sushi? So to begin with, uh, sushi really flourished during the uh, latter half of the Edo period. Edo's uh, the name for old Tokyo. Um, this was during the 17th and 19th century under the uh, Tokugawa uh, family. Um, and if you look at a lot of ukiyo-e paintings from that time, specifically uh, Utagawa Hiroshige, uh, he depicts uh, a scene of Edo um, in the early evening. Um, and it's, it's, you see a lot of street food, a lot of laborers, carpenters in, in Edo or Tokyo, um, and a lot of shokunins, so craftsmen who, uh, who are in town and, you know, building things, preparing things. So you're basic laborers. And when you look at those pictures, you see o s h i r u k o which is, you know, ja- kind of Japanese soup. You see dango, which is Japanese, you know, type of meatballs, sweets. You see soba. You see tempura. And finally, you see sushi. And this is all street food. And uh, it's for this reason that now we call soba, tempura, and sushi as Edo no Zanmai, which is the three flavors of Edo. Mm-hmm. So really, sushi kind of took off in old Edo, old Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept behind it back then was that sushi is hayai, it's fast. Sushi is oki, it, it's big, it fills the stomach, it's a lot of carbs, it's you know, a lot of rice. Um, sushi is umai, sushi is delicious. Um, it's supposed to be uh, heavy flavors, as you may know. There's a lot of vinegar in the rice. The uh, fish are pickled, they're cured, they're salted. Um, as such, they have strong flavors. And finally, sushi is cheap.、Um, it's for laborers who couldn't afford you know, a fine dining、uh, experience and they needed something to eat quickly before they go home or during their work hours. And they would go to these stalls. And either purchase again soba, tempura, or sushi.、Right. So that's kind of the beginnings of, of sushi. It was Edo fast food.、Hmm. And the fish that comes from, uh, 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 that, that was served back then was from Tokyo Bay. So it was really a, a few types of sushi or fish that was served. Right. And、um, so the Edo, the former name of Tokyo, It means a lot because it used to be the Japanese capital tend to be like, you know, in the West, Kyoto, and then emperors and all those nobles governed the whole country. And then, you know, all those shogun period came, and then the commercial, you know,、um, prosperity brought all those culture and thriving culture to the public. So people say New Yorkers and the Edo people were similar, very culturally. Sensible, curious, and active, and very impatient. That's why the quick form of fast food culture thrived in Tokyo. I、okay. like that, Akiko san, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's the、uh, Edoko or the Edo kid. He's a spendthrift,、um, he can't articulate well,、um, he's always in a hurry, 
you know, some, sounds like some of the stuff we see here in New York, to your point. I mean, they're both cosmopolitans. Right. And they say that they're quick to fight. <laughs> that too, yes. <laughs> right. So anyway, so, um, yeah, so the, well, that leads us to the question of, you know, types of sushi, right? So edumae is a one specific type of sushi. And yes. uh, it's basically made with uh, the fish just off the coast, uh, off the, the Tokyo Bay. That's edumae. Correct. So uh, real, I, I, I'm not sure if real is the right word, but the tr traditional sushi is all about how you salt, cure, and pickle the fish. This is because back then they didn't have refrigerators. So in order to preserve the fish, um, you had to uh, pickle it. And some of the fish that was caught in Tokyo Bay was, was not edible. I mean, like gizzard chat, the, what's called the hikarimono, the silverback category of fish, they're tough to eat when it's raw. So you need to neutralize the flavors. And in order to neutralize it, again, you either pickle it or um, uh, cure it. So w when you talk about traditional classic sushi, it's edomai sushi. And it's all about how it's pickled and how it's cured. When you, even today, when you go to you know, some old school or formal sushi restaurants in Japan, they tell you how long it's been aged, how it's been aged. And then you can compare it to other pieces where they say, well, this is two days old. This is three days old. So... That's kind of that, that. That's real traditional sushi. Mm. And other types of sushi we have. Well, so old school sushi is again edomai sushi. Uh, the Kansai or the Osaka era area has its own type of sushi. Mm. And uh, when edomai sushi was forming, they had what was called osushi. Sorry, osushi, which essentially is uh, rice and fish in a box and they would press it and they would ferment it and after maybe two three days or four or five days uh it was edible but the tokyoites didn't have time they wanted something fast and quick right. so um <laughs> back then what happened was they they decided to put vinegar in the rice and pickle the fish and boom in literally about you know five ten minutes you have pickled fermented fish and mm. that was sushi and really the evolution of sushi began again towards the um mid to end Edo period. And it was a competition be between two restaurants or two individuals, I should say, uh, Yohei-san and Matsugoro-san. Yohei began this whole concept of Edo-mai nigiri sushi. Nigiri means the fish with the rice together. And he would serve the, you know, the stereotypical Edo-mai sushi. So things like gizzard shad, horse mackerel. He would cure it. He would pickle it. And he would add wasabi to the uh, sushi in order to bring out the umami flavors. And his competition was Matsugoro. He was from Osaka. Um, he, was, uh, he would prepare oshisushi. And it was very expensive pieces, exotic pieces. And it was for the high net worth. And so there was competition from two ends and they kept innovating. And their rivalry is essentially what created sushi in the Edo period. So those were like the top two figureheads that... Uh, created the whole sushi movement. Mm, interesting. Yeah, by the way, we don't see, um, you know, hakozushi, oshizushi, in the press sushi in the box. It's tasty. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, nigiri, like a mound of rice topped with uh, fish or sushi rolls, but it's, it's completely different. It's like, it looks like a cake and uh, it's a delicacy. Yeah, I wish you can see that more often. Yeah, I mean, if you go to Osaka, I'm sure you'll get a lot of that. Right. Uh, in, even in Tokyo, yeah, I don't see it much. Mm. And in New York, I really haven't come across it. So Yeah, there's one, uh, you know, Yuji Haraguchi, who came to the show a couple of times. And he just opened a place called uh, 
uh, Okozushi in Williamsburg. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, that was delicious too. So. You recommended that place to me uh, when we first met uh, the uh, Yuji Ramen. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Okonomi, right? It's right. his other restaurant. Right. And as I think East Village Kyoya, yes. they have um, Oshizushi. Oh, okay. And I like the mackerel, but yes. it gets sold out so quickly when I make a reservation. Can you please save some? <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. I'll yeah. definitely have to give it a try. Yeah, it's amazing. So, all right. So, um, yeah, we can talk, keep talking about this whole background of sushi, but we have uh, restaurants to talk about, right? So, what's your criteria? of a great sushi restaurant? Look, there's various benchmarks. Everyone has their own sort of way of looking at sushi. Um, I personally prefer, I mean, the way I was taught is really a, a, the sushi experience is a relationship with the chef. You sit down at the counter. I never sit at a table. Mm. Um, It's just, for me, that's not the right sushi experience. And you sit in front of a sushi chef. It doesn't have to be expensive. It could be a low-end reasonable place and it's really a dialogue between you and the chef what fish is in you know how do you make uh, your rice do you use right uh, red rice vinegar or white uh, rice vinegar um, and it's really a conversation between you and the chef and what's seasonal what's not seasonal and based on that he understands what you like and over time you walk in there and without saying much he serves what you like and you enjoy it and then you go back home mm. it's kind of the uh, uh, way to assess sushi uh, stepping away from that, um, I guess what defines a good sushi place is one, uh, again, in, in line with uh, Japanese aesthetic values, is one, um, wh- how they procure seasonal fish, um, how they prepare it, how they present it, um, the aesthetics around the sushi place, the seating, the counter, the interaction within the, between the sushi chef. So at a more sort of higher level, those factors come into play. Mm, right. Oh, by the way, I think um, uh, outsiders, when people tend to perceive, I heard that uh, sushi means just get the freshest fish, high quality uh, fish, and uh, with beautiful Japanese knives, you cut it and then put it on, uh, you know, the flavored rice. But it's not because they have to cure you know, perishable fish with vinegar or salt, or sometimes you have to smoke, and that kind of thing is really um, another test for sushi chefs. Oh, absolutely, and I think that's one big uh, misconception here. A lot of people claim, to your point, you know, oh, this place, they serve really good fresh sushi. Um, and, and I always kind of think and respond, well, sushi's not really about how fresh the fish is. It's, you know, to your point, it's so easy to get fish, cut it up, and serve it. There's no technique or anything involved. What's interesting is when they start pickling and curing and marinating the fish and, you know, in, in serving that, that's when it becomes really interesting. So to your point, for me, the best experience of sushi is uh, the Edomai pieces, so the old classical way of uh, preparing sushi, and also mix in um, some new types of, you know, uh, so, so f- fresh sushi, fresh fish. And kind of, you know, move back and forth between those type of pieces. Mm. And I think the most progressive way to look at it is is places like Sushi Seki that, you know, marries tomatoes and various vegetables with the fish. And that's modern, sort of I would describe it as Manhattan-style sushi or Manhattan meets Edo. Mm. Um, and that's unique in its own way, and I appreciate it for what it is. And, you know, places like Samba Sushi is completely another take on sushi. 
but again, very different from its um, historical or cultural underpinnings. Mm, right, and just some other. I think there's a trend in, in Japan as well uh, here in New York too. But aging fish in the same idea as um, in the same way as that you know the aged beef for steak, that kind of thing. And it's just a question of how long you can age. But I've been to great restaurants, um, great sushi places, and then aged fish really tastes. Better sometimes. Oh, it's so. delicious! And uh, this makes me remember a place I went in uh, Ginza. Uh, it's somebody I had the honor of going there actually, and I was uh, invited there. It's imp- impossible to just walk in, but just one sushi chef, and their specialty is aged tuna, and they take out a tuna that's been uh, that that they left for two weeks, and when they open it up, it's all brown, so it's fermented. But they slice all that off. And this is fatty tuna, by the way. It's very expensive stuff. They slice maybe 80% of it of it off. And they serve you just the small middle part, which is still red. And my God, it's the best tuna I've ever mm. had. But it came at a very hefty price, too. Right, I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> it was not cheap. Right. Good to be a guest. Exactly. Yes. Right. So, well, the traditional social world is uh, making progress. I mean, tradition evolves. So that's interesting. So let's talk about your favorite restaurants. You have today got a list of six places, so hopefully we can go through everything. Um, so first of all, you have Kura in uh, East, West, East Village in New York City. So what is about Kura that you want to talk about? Yeah, Kura is a very uh, cute place in the East Village, reasonably priced. Uh, I, I, f- for me, I, I like to find places that are not highly priced. Um, sort of places where you can enjoy good traditional sushi without paying three, four hundred dollars a head. Kind of slightly hard to come by in New York City, but they're around. Uh, Kuda is one of them. Um, Chef Ishizuka is there. Also, Chef Yagi, who I've recently uh, met. They wear a samue, basically a monk's uh, work robe. And their style is very old school Edo style. It's, um, I think, uh, it's about 12 or 14 counter seats, something like that, and maybe two or three tables. So you're always interacting with the chef. There's three of them standing there. Uh, they're, they're fun to deal with. They're, they're jolly. And it's just a good experience. Um, and again, uh, to my earlier point, it's, it's, they've served classical Edo Mai style sushi there. Mm, and I heard that Mr. The Chef is guy is 75 years old. Yeah, he's pretty old, yes. Right, so. But he's very Genki, he's very alive. Mm, and uh, his experience. Yes. Right, with, uh, with the whole fish and uh, the sushi rice. So, and also, one thing I read about the place uh, is there's no glass case. Sushineta, the ingredients. That's right. If I may recall, yeah, they put it in wooden cases which are laid out, and from there they take it out and serve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it I think they even, of course, in, in Japan there's so many places, uh, sushi, you know, glass cases, which divides you w- between you and the sushi chef. So I don't like that. But in New York, I started to see more places without, you know, the glass cases like, of uh, course, Sushi Yasuda, Satsuki, Makasu Room by Tatsu, Sushi no, those are places. And I, it's important to me, you know, that metal and glass thing versus wooden box. It's a part of the performance. So that's your Japanese aesthetic value and senses coming into play again. Exactly. Yes. Right. So and it's always nice to watch them prepare it. I mean, part of sushi for me is just sitting there and watching the chef make things. Um, the the cutting board is very clean. Everything's symmetrically laid out. It's, again, the Japanese aesthetic value of cleanliness, 
perfection, symmetry, that all plays out again on the sushi chef's or the Itamai-san's uh, uh, cutting board. Mm. So watching that, to your point, is, is it's, it's fun. It's it's part of ex- the whole experience. Right. Yeah, I like the, you know, the smell. When I pass by really good sushi restaurant, I smell it, like a sweet that and vinegar. vinegar. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting hungry now. The osu. <laughs> yeah, osu. Can you get some delivery? Yeah, well, <laughs> and I, I think I remember that, uh, you know, Sushi Zen, now it's became, became a satsuki in the midtown. And uh, I was really late at night. I was the last customer. And then they just closed the restaurant. They started to wash all the, the wall and everything, literally. Yeah. The whole, it's like end of the year cleaning. Yeah. So I really admire those cleanness. That's yeah. important. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So, what's the price at uh, per person at uh, the Kura? Kura uh, starts at uh, I think about ninety dollars or a hundred dollars. Mm. Um, they have it's all omakase, uh, mm. and omakase basically means chef's special, mm. um, or you let the chef decide. I'm fundamentally opposed to omakase. For me, I like to talk with the sushi chef, and it's a quasi omakase, I should say, as in mm. you know, I want this, I want that as opposed to completely letting him take charge. But anyway, that's a different point. Um, so I think he has $100, $120, $150, $180. Mm. And sake is reasonably priced too. So you can walk out with, you know, including tip and taxes, anywhere from $150 to approximately two, $250, $300. Mm, right. Okay. So it's it sounds not cheap, but this, you can't have that experience of a sushi chef. You can't recreate anything like that so correct and again manhattan is pricing is slightly out of control if, <laughs> if, if i may put it that way it's in it's things are expensive in manhattan it's a different market it's mm. you know it's there's a lot of wealth here real estate is expensive so naturally kind of prices are higher than than average in in tokyo you see also prices slightly higher not as elevated as in manhattan and the best place to eat sushi is in Hokkaido. You go to Sapporo. It's half the price. Mm. Really good fish. A lot of, you know, when you go to sushi parlors here and in Tokyo, they all talk about Hokkaido uni, mm. Hokkaido um, uh, uh, scallops, Hokkaido this, Hokkaido that. You might as well go to Hokkaido and Sapporo and eat it. And it's usually half the price and much better experience. Mm, and real estate included. Ex- exactly. <laughs> I think Hokkaido is one of the poorest prefectures in Japan. Mm. So real estate prices are probably very low. Right. Um, and Therefore, prices are lower. Mm, and I heard that they have the best snow for skiers. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is becoming a global boom, the Niseko area with its powder snow. Mm, so, ski and sushi. Yes. That, that sounds like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the next one, uh, it's uh, Kurumazushi in Manhattan. It's in uh, Midtown, right? Correct. Yes. So, it's on 47th between... Madison and Fifth Avenue. It's on the second floor. You walk in and you literally feel like you're in Tokyo. It's and there's there are no signs. It's kind of nondescript. You walk up these very old staircase and they open the door and all of a sudden they you know you hear "Yashimase" and you're just in Tokyo. And uh, the reason I like that place is uh, uh, Chef Uezu-san. He is almost like a friend. I always sit in front of him. We chit chat. It's almost like if I go with people, I'm rude to the people I'm with because I'm busy chatting mm. the chef. But he's a jolly guy. He's been around for, uh, I think they just celebrated their 35th anniversary maybe two, three years ago. Or was wow. it 40th? I forgot. So they're one of the oldest um, sushi parlors in Manhattan. 
And I think historically they competed with masa in terms of price level. Mm. So I'm going to warn you, dinner is going to be very expensive. I usually go for lunch. They have a nice omakase set at $35. And you can tack on a few pieces. And um, it's very simple um, sushi. It's basic pieces. Some of them are pickled. Some of them are cured. Uh, his inventory is very good. It's, it's good quality, high quality fish. And just the whole experience, again, sitting there with the ambiance, with his wife coming out and chit-chatting you about the latest hot springs that she, she wants to go to. It's just a great experience. Mm, right. And uh, what I heard is that he came to, uh, um, Chef uh, Mr. Wezu came to New York in 1971. And uh, the name Kumatsushi came from um, his original sushi um, place he worked at as an apprentice in Tokyo, the Kumatsushi, in Shinbashi. So that's the owner. That the name came out of a respect. To yes, his that's right. Place. And every five years, he invites me to his uh, anniversary uh, nice. lunch, and he basically has all his guests come, and uh, it's free flow of tuna, fatty tuna, the best fish, drinks, sake, um, and it's just an amazing, fun experience. Mm. I'm not even ask you how many times you've been there to get invited <laughs> to that lunch. <laughs> well, you know what? You don't need to go to um, sushi places a lot to build a re- relationship. Just sit there, ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you make this? Where's the fish from? They're more than happy to have a discussion. Uh, it's just, it's been my experience that Japanese people are not necessarily the best marketers. They're not, they're focused on their craft. They're focused on the product. So they're not very good with promoting themselves unfortunately and that's something that lacks across the board in japan both in in corporate japan also so as a diner you should bring that out in them ask them what they like how they prepared it where the fish is from and they'd be more than happy to share and before you know it they're your best friend Mm, right so the key is sit at the counter talk to the chef and that's the way and enjoy enjoy, yes right Okay, so uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the great sushi restaurants. And this time we'll visit Tokyo. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Koin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com.
Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is、um, Masood Kiyasi, who has a Japanese food and restaurant blog on Instagram under Tokyo Manhattan. And he appeared on episode 125 to discuss his favorite Japanese chefs and restaurants. Today, we are continuing a fun conversation with the focus on sushi restaurants. So, now let's talk about sushi places in Tokyo. So,、uh, first,、uh, Kyubei. So, Kyubei, yeah, it's,、uh, it's one of the most, I guess, popular sushi parlors in、uh, Tokyo, or Japan, I should say.、Uh, they're known、uh, throughout all of Japan. Uh, they think they own two buildings in Ginza, which is a glitzy area of Tokyo.、Um, and it's all、uh, sushi.、Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, my- if you have a sushi restaurant in Ginza, that's like, you know, the prize you won as a、oh, sushi restaurant. Oh, it's a gold、thing. standard, of <laughs> course. Like, ha- it's like having a shop on Fifth Avenue as a designer.、Mm. So, same concept. But they,、um, they, they also cater to a lot of department stores. So, it's a very strong brand.、Um, and I think the best way to describe it is.、Um, Taishu Kokyu Sushi, which is high end sushi catered to the masses.、Mm. And they use a lot of、uh, Rosanjin, which is、uh, a famous Japanese ceramic artist,、um, his pottery、uh, in their restaurants. So, again, a lot of Japanese cultural values manifested in the restaurant. And their style is very different from the next space we'll, we'll discuss, but their style is very much along the lines of、um, uh, entertaining the client. They'll drink with you if you provide them with beer. They all drink. They all kind of say things in harmony, like, or, you know, it's, it's, it's a show they put on and、mm. it's fun to watch. And it's not a cheesy, gimmicky show. It's, you know, very much in line with traditional way of doing business and serving、um, diners. Right. So they started the, the history in 1935. And I heard, you know, the sea urchin and the,、like, uh, the summer rose, they are hard to make it into sushi, but they invented how to. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, yeah, so they have a history and、yeah. uh, they deserve this respect. Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay, so、uh, how about Jiro? Jiro is an interesting place. Now,、uh, everyone, a lot of people know about Jiro. Reason being one, they, they have a documentary on Netflix, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. They are also a Michelin three star、uh, sushi place. And Obama went. Obama went there, yes, together with、uh, Prime Minister Koizumi. So, globally, it's very well recognized. I've had the、uh, privilege of going there twice, but this is way before all the, uh, uh, before it became global.、Um, the positives of Jiro one, they have been around for, I don't know, you tell me, like what, 50, 60 years? Or 60 years, I think the、uh, owner is 80 some years old.、Mm, he's now 92. Oh, 92. There you go. <laughs> It's, my mind's still trapped from a decade ago. But he's been doing sushi since he was, what, like 17 or 16 or something like that.、Mm. And it's nonstop. It's, again, the, the, the pursuit of perfection, of obsession, just laser focused on your craft. And when you talk to old, older Japanese people and you ask them, why Jiro? Because you walk in there, you're done after 20, 30 minutes.、Um, you know, he's, he's kind of rude, as in there's no entertainment. You know, he's just like you sit there, you eat, and you're done, and you pay $300. And I ask them, Why? They say, well, this is quintessential Japan.、Mm. It's, it's real Edomai classic、um, sushi. And he's there, he has no emotions, he has no feelings, and all he does is serve.、Mm. Now, I get it. It's, it's interesting in its own way, but personally, I'm not a fan.、Um, it's, it's just, you know, as a customer, I like to be entertained.、Right. So I prefer 
Cube. Uh, it's you know mm. kind of their rival. I'm sure they both disagree, but it's a different story. Well, um, when it comes to, I think if I, I were you know Chef Jiro, Jiro Ono, probably perfection of sushi. He just made. He spent hours, his whole life to make this precious piece of sushi. I want you to eat it once it's even before it put down onto your tray or yes. you know sushi tray. I I get it. Yeah. And uh, but you know then your dinner is going to be done in 20 minutes. Exactly. And it's, uh, you're not even allowed to have like plenty of time conversation. No. Like, so you know this there should be more hospitality and uh, you know it has to be a relaxing, fun experience rather than you know just appreciate the piece of sushi which i think it's great so i I kind of agree with you that i mean the counter argument to that is but that's how sushi is eaten it's fast Mm. but then it's expensive i mean sushi should be cheap too right Right. and to make the reservation people would have spent more than 20 minutes to (laughs) oh absolutely maybe a year now i I don't know right so okay so that's zero but uh i'm sure it's worth going yes for many listeners yes uh so next one the shinbashi tsuruhachi bunten this is a place I just went um, in May. Very cute place. Um, younger gentleman. He is in his 40s, although he's been um, making sushi for the last 20 years. And mind you, as you know, in Japan, making sushi for 20 years is not a lot of time. Generally, if you've been doing it for 50, 60 years, you're mm-hmm. finally considered to be have mastered sushi to a certain extent. Although the chefs themselves think it's an et- eternal pursuit and never ends. So anyway, young gentleman. It's just himself. He's very focused. Uh, I think there's only six seats, and it's in a very uh, shabby building on the second floor in the Shinbashi area. So a lot mm. of, you know, white collar Japanese salarymen once they're done, more the bucho or the uh, the senior sort of middle to senior management class of people go there. And it's very quintessential Japan. You probably never see a foreigner. They don't speak English, but he serves classical you know edomai sushi i don't think there's even music there's one other person working there it's very simple again a lot of japanese aesthetic values and just very good sushi mm. i heard that uh, he's uh, the son of another sushi chef and uh since uh, he's been making sushi for 18 years yeah something since he like graduated that. from high school yep and uh well the he was planning to succeed father's place but uh the father's place closed, and before that, he decided to open his own place. So it's kind of what I heard is, uh, you know, the Hirokazu-san, the, the Mr. Chef Hirokazu Igarashi. That's the name of this restaurant chef. Um, so he really has respect to father's way of doing things, and then making sushi in exactly the same way as he his father did. Yeah. Yeah. So before, for instance, before you cut on the shiny fish. He uses uh, some uh, vinegar water. Yep. And then just dip it so that this have a cleaner, fresher taste, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a younger chef. Yes. But classic way of making things. Yes. And when you watch him um, nigiru or make the sushi, he's very focused and very concentrated. Mm. It's almost like he's in its own. Wo- he's in his own world, and that's just fun to watch. Mm. You know, his personality comes out. Right. Well, that's again, that's the sensibility that you can observe yes. and absorb in, in yourself. So that's the best part of going to sushi place. Yes. Right. So uh, Suzumasa, that's another place you want to talk about? Sure. So the last place, Suzumasa, it actually used to be called Koraku. They recently changed their name. The I think the owner either retired or passed away. I forgot the details. And there was an ownership change. 
but essentially they've kept the restaurant they've kept the decor and it's you know they're serving essentially the same thing so from a diner's perspective it's only a name change and the owner is no longer there unfortunately he was he was also a very old gentleman that you know was was around for quite some time um but this is my i guess home sushi for lack of a better word um every time i go back to japan i would eat there i've been eating there for 20 years they know me i know them they know what i like um, the price never really changes. And their toro is just phenomenal. I think mm. it's the best toro in Tokyo. They basically take really good fatty tuna. And then they take the shavings of uh, uh, the the flesh, uh, between the flesh and the skin. They add that on top. And then they add a piece of leek on top. And they add soy sauce to it. And uh, that's how they serve their ototos. It's very different. Mm. And they're also known for their anagos, which is eel. It's very soft, very tender, very sweet, and just extremely juicy. Interesting. So they're known for those two pieces, and it's delicious. Um, I've met a lot of interesting people there. Um, the theme is very much um, uh, minimalism. There's mm. no decor, just one small vase. I think they only have two, three types of sake, and it's all from Niigata, where the owner comes from. So they only want you to, uh, they only want you to drink, you know, two types of sake. Mm. Um, but you can enjoy a full course sushi meal there, right. and it's rel- it's modestly priced, relatively speaking. Mm, so interesting. I didn't know anything about this place, but then I did some research. So I think there may be an update. So um, this place, uh, we knew our opening was 2nd of September this year. And yes, that's uh, right. Yeah. right. So you, you went after that? I went before that when it was called Kodaku, but they gave me the new business card. They okay. said we're going to go through renovations right. and this will so be a name change. What I heard is that the owner was going to close um, Kodaku, but then he wanted to find someone who can succeed the space. And there's a guy who met at the Tsukiji market who oh, buys the best tuna that like you mentioned. Oh. So he said, well, I won't have this guy to succeed come over and take over my space and then what happened the, the guys from uh, Yamagata prefecture it's the northern part of Japan yep so and the, the, this uh, the new guy who took over and it, uh, now the Suzumasa the chef owner was famous in Yamagata of course with four high quality sushi interesting so it's a that. really emerging of two amazing sushi restaurants wow in one space so I appreciate that you told me about this I have to go you should there. go yes definitely right so um, well we don't have much time but I really want you to um, teach us how to eat sushi absolutely so the way I was taught there of course are various schools of thought but more the classical approach of eating sushi is and again this is in a formal setting obviously you can go to you know sushi parlors which is quick 20-30 minutes um, and you know you just eat couple pieces and you're done and you pay you know 10 20 bucks there's also tsukiji sushi you go there and you eat well no longer tsukiji i guess they moved to toyosu so toyosu sushi you go there and you experience you know fish fresh from the market whatever that means but anyway to get to the point uh the way you eat sushi is you begin with beer it's light crisp japanese beer it gets the appetite going and you enjoy some sashimi with that mm. and it's for well, this that's, uh, one thing quickly you know japanese people sit down and the first drink beer it's toriyaki sushi yes. yeah fresh beer and then move on to sake well it's yes. just like a cultural thing right? it is absolutely <laughs> it's a draft beer just again it's crisp light it gets the appetite going you know it, it relaxes you and you know you say otsukare-sama you had a long day and then you move on to sashimi and sashimi is also called otsumami it's for this reason that they call it otsumami which means snack mm. so essentially you're enjoying uh, fish, pickled fish, fresh fish, different varieties of fish, whatever is in season, whatever is shun, 
with sake. Um, after you're done with that, um, you have some kind of a uh, uh, um, fried fish, steamed fish, or the fish of the day, the catch of the day. Uh, they serve that. And from there, you kind of transition into sushi. And between that, you may eat some chawanmushi and other little, you know, tapas-style uh, food. And the whole idea be- behind sushi is once you're done drinking and eating all these different types of food and fish, um, then you finish off with sushi because it's a carb, a carbohydrate. It's, it comes with rice. And old people who don't have a lot of appetite, and they themselves say this, is, you know, I eat two, three pieces of sushi and I'm done. Mm. Um, but you kind of finish off with sushi. And then the last sort of thing you have is what's called oang, which is usually miso soup. And then you finish off with heavier pieces such as anago, toro. You start with the lighter stuff. And uh, the finale is the egg, the tamago. Mm. And tamago is supposed to be dessert and it's sweet. So that's how uh, I've been taught to eat sushi, and that's how I like to eat my sushi in a formal setting. Mm, right. And of course, it depends on where you go. You can just sit down and order, you know, a la carte sushi pieces, but that's the right way to have, enjoy the sequence. Absolutely. That's what I like to think. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to go to sushi place right I'm now. I'm hungry. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Maybe we should go one day. Yep. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, okay. So, listeners, uh, I'm going to put all the names of sushi we mentioned today. Uh, on the show page, so you don't have to try to remember anything. So, um, all right, you have to come back to talk more about restaurants. Oh, I'd love to, and with the changing seasons, I should come back and talk about another season. Right. <laughs> all right, so thank you for joining us today again. Thanks again, yeah. Akiko-san. So, uh, and keep dining. Yes. <laughs> right, so listeners, if you'd like to know more about Jamasu's discoveries of Japanese cuisine, follow him on Instagram under Tokyo Manhattan. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikotaema.com. Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. And our engineer today is uh, Matt Patterson. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.